Well, we usually end with um, questions when everybody's exhausted and wants to bail. <laughs> Maybe we'll start that way. So, anybody have any questions? Any thoughts? And you don't have to make anything up. You had something you wanted to throw out. sometimes fleshing something out. I want everything to be understood, but we could have covered probably more ground had I not done that, but that's just the way it is, you know. So, in my effort to not be boring, I can burn through some time, right? That's the way it is. Otherwise, I'm just up here reading out an outline. I could have just emailed everybody. <laughs> you know what I mean? So, different ways to do it, right? Different different strokes for different folks, different ways to connect with people. So let's think about where we are for a second. We have talked about, in, in great detail I would say, the importance and the priority of preaching the Bible. Now that we often operate in practical variants with our profession, that preaching the Word of God is the answer for man's problems and it's a responsibility of the preacher. And we talked from many different angles of why that disparity between profession and practice seems to exist. And that of course is for all sorts of reasons. Pride, you know, personal gain, um, fear of ridicule of the brethren. Sometimes it's just confusion or misinformation about what it takes to preach the Bible well. Um, so, we went through that. Talked, we've talked a lot about what biblical preaching looks like and what it is not. Then, the elephant in the living room is the definition of, the description of, the understanding of exposition. What is that? And why in, you know, in many circles you can go and talk about preaching expository sermons and, and most of the people would just assume that biblical preaching and expository preaching is the same thing. But there are many leaders in independent circles who, who say, well, it doesn't matter if you preach topical sermons or, or expository sermons. Are biblical sermons? Well, now we have a we have a problem, right? And um, we have a problem with our understanding of the definition. And we plowed through almost I'll say almost almost every significant homiletician's scientific explanation of what exposition actually is, right? There's an exception or two that we looked at for fairness, but most of them explain exposition 
as a philosophy, a process that you go through from the earliest moment of study through the delivery. That whole process is exposition. It requires study. It requires um, analysis, hermeneutics, sermonic development, delivery. And the point of exposition is to lay bare before the hearer what it is that the scripture actually means. What is it that the author of scripture intended in this text? As opposed to, I have this topic I want to address, and then I'm going to use the Bible to support what I want to say. I'm not saying that there's never a time for a Christian preacher to address a topic. Just don't call it biblical preaching. If, if what you're doing is using the Bible to support what you intend to say anyway. That's not the same thing as going to a text, letting the text be the master of all your efforts and expression. And the product being the communication of the people, the sense that God intended in a particular passage. Now we have exposition. Okay? So, we've begun to talk about the major building blocks of an expository sermon. The first thing we talked about was context. And, I mean, that's just the most important thing. You couldn't overemphasize it. Um, and we, we define that context as the situation in which the text is found, which shapes our understanding of what we read. Okay? And, you know, you have <coughs> scenarios that would require, all, preaching always requires a, a, a contextual intuition, I guess you could say. I mean, you have a passage in Scripture that says that adulterers, adulterers even by committing adultery, be put to death. Then you got a passage where someone caught in the act of adultery. Jesus says, anybody without sin cast the first stone. Right? <laughs> then you have a text that says that adulterers should be, you know, should withdraw fellowship from them. And, and so there's context for all of those. You've got a Old Testament context. You've got a context where Jesus is right here on the earth in the flesh. You have a context of the New Testament church and how we're to operate within the church. So all those things will shape how you look at it. Some people are bothered by that because they want to think that the scripture says and means the same thing from start to finish in every situation and have this big fluid sweeping understanding of every passage. And that is absolutely an infantile approach to understanding the Bible. It's just not, it's not possible. Uh, so we all understand that context is absolutely vital. Who, what, when, where, and how keep six honest serving men they taught me all I knew no their names are who their names are what why and when how and where and who anyway I don't know why I did that again it's fun so context number one number two the big idea so we have the context down we've studied the passage we have plowed through that thing and you've got your hand out there uh, that uh, so now we've you know we've done the 
the background work on the passage so we know basically what's happening. But there's big picture. <laughs> Sometimes the picture's so big you couldn't miss it. But when you start getting into the passage and digging into the details, you're going to start asking questions. Why in the what does this even mean? I don't know what that means. Why is this being said? So you get into the diagram of the text right there, right? You have a diagrammed passage where you have the separation of phrases. So you have supporting clauses, phrases underneath dominant expressions in a passage. And they're lined up, and if they're lists in the verse, you list them vertically in the passage, right? It's a list of words or sins or expressions. You indent them and list them. So you diagram the whole passage. Work through that passage. Study the words. Work through the theological implications of the passage. This is why waiting to Saturday is impossible. <laughs> now, people talk about Spurgeon studying on Saturday, which he said that he did. But A, you're not Spurgeon. Not even close. I'm trying to insult you, but you're not close. I'm not close. The aggregate of, of mental capacity in this room and the ability to communicate that artfully, also not Spurgeon. But Spurgeon studied all week. Saturdays when he funneled that work into a sermon. That so some of this becomes semantical. Okay, if you think you can preach solid, consistent sermons and go to work on them sometime on Saturday, it's just not going to happen. And I my approach for years has been. On Wednesday, I diagram the passage and put it on, in print. Thursday, I do all the surface research and work and background stuff that I want to do. And, and usually even before Wednesday, I'm doing the outside front-loading work, like if it's going to be a sermon where justification, you know, is the central feature that I'm going to read theology that relates to justification. Or... I knew, I knew when I was coming to Genesis 19 that the subject of homosexuality was going to be an issue, and I didn't want to just sound like a raving fool about it, you know. You know, a bunch of homos, there's got to be something better to say than what we would impulsively want to say. So I read numerous books that were, you know, recommended highly that were the right kind of stuff leading up to that one sermon. So I learned more about the just dreadful subject and its reality and the statistics that relate to it and all the issues that relate to it more than I ever thought possible leading mm -hmm. up to that one sermon. So it, it shaped my ability to prepare the sermon in a lot of different ways because there are a lot of unique things in the passage that it says about the men of Sodom that are interesting in relation to those issues, right? And it did help me see the human side of some of it. We see that uh, you know the percentage of abuse involved in what leads up to that, and, and the horrible issues that relate to the subject, right? So I was able to preach that passage with clarity, conviction, and yet compassion. But you can't do that firing it up on Saturday mm -hmm. afternoon. You have to prepare, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. And you know you, what's going to happen? What happens when you're preaching on? Let's suppose. You're preaching on Genesis 19 and all the subject matter therein. And, uh, you know, 
a psychiatrist in your area decides to come to church? I'm not saying you change the sermon, but are you going to sound like an idiot? Are you going to sound like somebody who knows what they're talking about? Will the psychiatrist think, hmm, this preacher is not just throwing words around. He's, you know what I mean? He's, he's fairly well prepared. Not sure if I agree with everything he says, but he's thought it's thoughtful. Does that make sense? Yeah. So, I think that uh, no, no preacher should be intimidated by doctors and lawyers and those kind of people. Bankers. They don't. They're not supposed to know what we know as well as we know it. And I made the joke the other night. I really wasn't kidding about being a week ahead. You'd be a week ahead of them, right? And, and work so hard on the text that, that let, let's be honest about the doctors. They're not that smart. They've memorized a bunch of words that relate to medicine, and they've learned the, pr the procedures and the predictability of these, these normal, ordinary sicknesses, and everybody's all gaga about a doctor. Well, I appreciate what they do when they do it. Get them out of there, and they're morons. I'm, I'm tired. I mean, I don't mean, I don't mean doctors are literally morons. I mean, you don't have to be intimidated by the lawyer. Yeah, he's a lawyer, but when he starts talking about life, yeah, if y'all notice, doctors, lawyers, those people, they get divorced like everybody else. They have family problems like everybody else. They have trouble dealing with their teenage daughter like everybody else. They, you see what I mean? So if you prepare the scripture and preach an informed sermon with passion and compassion, with love and with conviction, and they'll, they'll, they'll appreciate it. All right. So, Dylan, real quick before yeah, I move on, I... As far as like your schedule goes, do you yeah. do that that practice for your uh, the, the Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday thing for both sermons, Sunday morning, what do you Sunday mean night? Both sermons. Do you, oh, do you preach twice? Or I just make once? stuff up on Sunday nights. <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> That's why you let me do Sunday nights. <laughs> um, yes, in general, same approach. It is a little lighter for me on Sunday nights. That's just the way I do it. Yeah. Um, on Wednesday nights, we have an hour-long grind. We don't sing a song. We don't take up an offering. We don't have a special. We come in and say, what's up, homies? Everybody gets some coffee, and we dig in, and we study basic Bible doctrines with an influx, or an inflection, rather, of theology. You know, and we'll talk about a lot of things that's not necessary for a rank-and-file Christian to know. They don't even need to know. It's not really, it's about the Bible. It's not in the Bible. You know what I mean? But the reason for doing that is because I want them, when they encounter that in the culture, I want them to have heard it. Mm -hmm. I want them to know that someone doesn't have special insight because they know some big words. Mm -hmm. So I try to demystify, you know, atheism and you know the antagonisms of that yeah. world and philosophy and all that. So Wednesday night's heavy duty. Sunday night is a little lighter, a little more practical, a little more exhortation oriented in the way I do it. So it's still biblical. I just usually have overflow from Sunday morning or I have some other light thing that I'm working on, and I usually work on that on Sunday afternoons. All right? But uh, so it's not less biblical. It's just less intense. You know? mm -hmm. um, but now we just made an adjustment, and we're having an afternoon service. So I'm going to actually have to work more during the week, which I'm not happy about. <laughs> But it'll be nice to have Sunday evening free, you know, have the Sunday morning service, break for lunch, come back to an afternoon service. The afternoon service is going to be a little bit 
heavy on the emphasis of evangelism and ministry and we're going to focus on some of that statistics wise what we're all doing during the week what we're putting into the effort to reach people and then we'll have a charge a challenge of some sort and uh, and then pray together and then off with positive hope of making a difference that week that's kind of the general idea rather than just trying to have a completely mimic service another one on Sunday night just like what they do on Sunday morning just like what they do on Wednesday night I hear guys all the time, oh, I'd, I'd have three big services every week, and I would rather kill myself. You know, so, I mean, we're all, everybody's different, right? But, but yeah, this, the short answer to your question is, yeah, I mean, you just got to decide how much you're putting out on Sunday night. If you have a full-blown, you know, hour-and-a-half service on Sunday night, and you're going to preach 45 minutes, you have to. Otherwise, you're just bumping your illness. Um I don't need to get into all that philosophy, but uh, yeah. So, we've done the, uh, oh, what was I saying? Okay, so Wednesday I'll do that, Thursday, I, Friday is usually the day that I, I, now I've done a lot of preliminary stuff, Friday is when I dig in hardcore, and usually study all day Friday, getting ready for Sunday. That's, that's sometimes when the schedule gets messed with, you know how that works, but that's the general plan. What I like to be able to do is do all that. I, you know, my goal is to read everything written on planet Earth that I can get in my hands on that text. Sometimes it's just not necessary, right? But often um, it just makes a difference. And occasionally I'll get halfway through my stack and I'll think, this is good right here. This right here is where I need to go. And I need to just flesh this out, make sure that it's clear. And, and that's good enough. I don't have to read everything that's ever been written on the subject just to say I did it. But often I need it. You know, sometimes there's a, there's a, it's a complicated passage. Very often it might be that my brain's not firing right. And, I, and it takes a different way of having it said for me to get it. And sometimes it's not about understanding the truth in the passage. It's trying to find the, the way to communicate it. Trying to find the angle, you know, to make the sermon artistic um, because I'm just telling you, you, you if people are bored they're not getting what you're saying mm -hmm. so you can tell yourself if you want to well it's the word of God that matters I'm just going to be faithful people love the word of God they'll get it no they won't that's like saying if you're if you're hungry and you love food you'll eat if you get hungry well that sounds good but we live in a different world if I don't like what you're cooking, I'll get out. I'll get in the car, and go find some cooking I like. <laughs> Follow me. So you better put some gravy on it. <laughs> you, better, you better put it together well. And uh, you know you can you can take a a steak and lob the thing in a pile of grease and cook it till it's done. And it's gray when it's done because you boiled it in oil, basically. You know, it's just bland. You know, God forbid you put any salt on anything. Or you can do it right. Right? You can put an excessive amount of salt and pepper on the steak at room temperature. Let it sit. Get that skillet piping hot. I'm talking about smoking hot. Add a little oil. Not a lot. You don't want to boil it. Just lay that steak in there. But let it go for about two and a half minutes or three. And it's going to put a hard brown sear. Color its flavor, right? You're going to turn that thing over and you're going to 
throw in the rosemary and the thyme and the garlic and that oil. And then, after about a minute and a half or so, you're going to throw in several big knobs of butter and a butter will melt down in the oil. And you tip that thing and just baste that steak with that hot oil, nutty oil, you know, buttery oil. And just baste it and baste it until it's done, which is going to be medium, you know, at the most, right? And then you're going to take that thing out of there and set it on a cutting board and just let it just fry. At least, if you cooked it six minutes, it's got to sit three minimum. Just let those juices reduce, right? And just cut the big thick slices of that thing and just taste like butter and salt and oil and steak <laughs> all up. You know what I mean? You can do it that way <laughs> or the other way, right? You can preach a sermon. You can just say, well, this is the Bible. And this is what the Lord gave me. And go in there and ramble. And everybody want to cut themselves. And you use the same jokes and the same illustrations and overused stories and you know, you'll have all those fallbacks. You know, <clears throat> a musician learns to play like whoever he likes, right? And if they never get past that amateur level, they've got all these nervous tricks that sound like whoever they like. And I've got a friend that was, he's a professional musician, a mandolin player. He was playing in this workshop, okay? And so all these people there to learn about how to play the mandolin. There's quite a few professional mandolin pickers on the stage. And one of the guys is like the Michael Jordan of mandolin players, all right? So it's Sam Bush is his name. He's sitting down at the end of the line, and my buddy's up here. And, and so they're all taking a run at a song. I forget what it's called. It's one of the old fiddle tunes instrumental. So it comes around his turn, and he goes to it, plays it, plays it his way. Goes off through it. He's a little bit nervous because Sam's down there, you know, and he's playing. He wraps it up. Everybody gives him, gives him a hand, and Sam Bush is listening to him, picking up all of those licks that are his, that he learned from Sam, right? And it's like his nervous go-to, like his default, right? And so everybody applauds, and then Sam leans out and says, and that's exactly how it goes. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? So there's got, there's got to come a point in your preaching where you, uh, if you're not well prepared, over-prepared, you're going to get worn out and repetitive and everything's, you know, uh, what do you call it? Leftovers. And um, so, I can't, okay, that's enough of that. So, we've got the big idea written out now because we've studied the passage carefully. We've studied all the words, done all these word studies. And, and so now we have, uh, we've read the commentaries now. And made great observations and the commentaries have helped us to shape our understanding of the big idea, right? And so we've written out the big idea, which is the is the statement interpreting what the text meant then, right? What does that text mean? What is the author of Scripture saying through the human uh, penman, human author, to the group that it's being written to? And so what's the big idea or central theme of this text? And guys, there's a lot of sermons preached where they don't know that because they have they want to say what they want to say. But if we're preaching this, what this wants to say is what needs to be said. So we write the big idea down. Now, turn it over to the back side. Now we get to the proposition. So out of the context, out of our contextual understanding comes, emerges the big idea. We write the big idea down, and from the big idea comes this proposition. 
Now, what is the proposition? The proposition is the point to be discussed. It's the point to be discussed or maintained in argument. The point to be discussed or maintained in argument usually stated in sentence form near the outset. The point to be discussed or maintained in argument usually stated in sentence form near the outset. That's Merriam-Webster. That's a basic definition of what a proposition is. Now let's talk about the sermonic proposition for a second, okay? I think four statements, I think. Number one, the proposition comes directly from the big idea of the passage. The big idea is the central idea of the text, all right? Let's try to think, and the proposition is this statement this point to be discussed. Alright, let me get ahead of myself. Alright, so number two proposition, it is the sermon in one sentence. It's the sermon in one sentence. R.G. Lee's Payday Sunday. You know, I introduce to you Ahab, that vile human toad that squatted upon the throne of Israel, a man who had command of a nation's armies but no control over his own soul. You know, the whole sermon's like that, hour and a half of masterful expression. <laughs> Payday Sunday. What's the, the, what's the big idea? The big idea is that you're going to reap what you sow. The payday is coming. The proposition is that sermon in one sentence. Okay. Um, and maybe what I just said was the proposition. The big idea would be that God is just. Right? And shall not the judge of all the earth do right and God's justice means that he will treat sin the way it should be treated and that he will always do right in that regard. And what's the proposition? Well, the proposition is the sermon in one sentence. Now, let's go a little further with it. It states a truth to be believed. It states a truth to be believed. That's number three. Or number four, it states an expected action, a command to be obeyed. So our proposition is going to tell people what we want them to believe or what we want them to do. Does that make sense? So, now let me give you another definition of proposition just like the big idea. We said the big idea, central idea of the text, that's a 15 to 18 word past tense statement interpreting what the text meant then. The proposition is a 15 to 18 word present or future tense application of the big idea to the contemporary context. <clears throat> All right? I'm going to go through that. Y'all get tired of me. If you don't get this one down, we'll waste the last two days. <laughs> you know? All right? The proposition, that's the primary charge. It is a 15 to 18 word, and you know that's pedantic or that's uh, arbitrary, we've explained that. A 15 to 18 word, present or future tense, 
application. A 15 to 18 word present or future tense application of the big idea to the contemporary context. So, <clears throat> let's just think of some, let's see, this is something I should have worked through so I wouldn't have to think it through on my feet. But let's say, we're going to preach uh, Romans 1, For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. But therein is the righteousness of God revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the just shall live by faith. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who hold the truth and unrighteousness. So, the big idea here. <clears throat> The big idea here is, is, is clearly that God's message for the world, God's answer for the world's problems, we'd have to do this, count the words and reword it, but uh, God's, uh, <clears throat> excuse me, the manifestation of God's righteousness, what makes known who God is, what God expects, what God requires, is the gospel. All right, that's the big idea. You want to see who God is, what God expects, how God feels about sin, what God requires for a man. You look at Christ on the cross, the buried body of the Savior, the resurrection. That's the Christian message. And everything that we believe, you see it right there. Now, what am I, why am I saying it that way? For therein is the righteousness of God revealed from faith to faith. Right? So that's the big idea. You see how God thinks feels about sin or what God thinks about sin when you see Christ on the cross, right? You see his omnipotence when you see him raised from the dead. You see his sovereign purpose when he dies. The Bible says the Lamb of God was slain before the foundation of the world, right? That was, God just didn't say, well, I don't know, what in the world am I going to do now? We've got to come up with a plan. I mean, he knew, right? So that's the big idea. Well, the proposition would come from the big idea, all right? So let's, uh, let's write it more um, comprehensively, okay, or more, uh, yeah, at least so we can comprehend it's what I mean. Let's make it more clear. Uh, yeah. So the big idea, th this is just talking on my feet here, okay, this is not the result of exhaustive research like we've talked about. So here's the big idea that we've been discussing. Right? God's plan to redeem the world is wrapped up in the gospel. Alright? Now, I might think that through because I'm being a little cute with the phrase wrapped up. When the Bible says therein is the righteousness of God revealed, 
So I might, I might word that a little differently. I might say God's plan to redeem the world is revealed in the gospel. Right? Whatever. So there's the, uh, the plan to redeem the world. There's the big idea. So now we have to have a proposition which comes from that. You understand that if there's no propositional feature to the preaching, people would disagree with this, and that's fine. But my way of saying it, if there's no propositional feature to the preaching, then your sermon is just driving around town. Right? You never really go anywhere. You never really do anything. Now, driving around town's not always bad. It's not bad to preach a sermon and say, look at all these wonderful things. Isn't that wonderful? All right, let's go to the house. But at some point, you have to bring to bear upon the people the expectation that something is to be believed, something is to be done. Right? So the proposition from God's plan to redeem the world is wrapped up in the gospel. We can write down the proposition. Now, a lot of times the proposition's there. You don't need to look for it. Yeah, it's already written in. You don't need to create something. Okay? For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God and salvation to everyone that believeth. Here's the proposition. Believe the gospel. Now the simplicity of that is invigorating to me. Because when I think, believe the gospel. Well yeah, who doesn't believe the gospel? Well, a lot of people don't believe it. And a lot of people, as we said earlier, live in practical variance with what they profess to believe. You say you believe the gospel, when's the last time you told someone about the gospel? See, see how you can mind can start going down those roads. Now, we don't want to preach the sermon based upon a lot of potential emotional tirades. Which is for, but that's okay to flesh that out initially. Where we, what we want to do now, now here's where the sermon, this work we're doing here starts to look like a sermon. We have context, we have the big idea, we have the proposition. Now, we have the sermon body developed, okay? And that involves this. You develop the sermon, the body of the sermon with this part of your, you guys know something. You can study for a sermon and prepare a sermon and preach without my little cute little thing here. This sermon research form. This is just a guide. Some people, it helps some people to compartmentalize everything and, and to go at it and then to let those things merge into a sermon, right? You get all this work done, you're going to be closer to preaching something than you've ever been. I guarantee you. All right? So, right here, hows and whys. See how that follows the proposition at this point. Hows and whys. So, I have written as my proposition, believe the gospel. Okay, this is all coming out of the study. So, the first thing I'm going to do is ask the question, how? How do I believe the gospel? Now, I'll tell you what I'm not going to do. I'm not going to sit here and go, well, let me see if I can take this here. That's not it. I'm going to find the answer in the text. All right, so let's think this through, see what we can do. This is, a comp this is probably a, a more complicated choice right here, but we'll see what we can do with it. For I am not ashamed. Why do I believe the gospel? For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. Now, 
You can run right past that because you know it's coming. It's the power of God. Amen. We get true. But before you get there, it's the gospel of who? Christ. I would say, I'm doing my wise, aren't I? Let me back up. How? How do I believe the gospel? For it is the power of God and the salvation to everyone that believeth, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For therein is the righteousness of God revealed. This is heavy, okay? This is where my mind's at, and this is a consequence of recent study. But so far, I'm not reading any hows yet until I get right here to verse 17, and I realize that believing the gospel involves encountering its revelation. You don't believe anything unless it's revealed to you, right? So the first step would be, how do I believe the gospel? I um, Now, this is a brainstorming thing here. So it doesn't have to be perfect. It doesn't have to be correct. You may not use all the points. You're brainstorming, right? So how do I believe the gospel? I consider revelation. You see what's packed in there, and then I write, I write down consider revelation, and then on, you know, see any diagram there? How, why, or I'm doing hows first. I could have done whys first. Hows consider revelation for the verse. I put verse 17. Now, where's, I'll tell you where my mind's at. But Revela the Bible says that the gospel is revealed. The righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith in the gospel. The Christian religion is a revealed religion. Okay? And there's general revelation, the theologians tell us. Alright? And that's the way I preach. And that's right here in the text. General revelation is right here. Verse 20, for the invisible things of him from the creation of the world are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. Don't let an atheist intimidate you. The revelation of God's clearly seen. They know it's clearly seen. The reason they're so angry is conviction. Like you heard the guy that wrote the book, uh, um, the atheist that wrote the book, uh, God is, uh, there is no God, and boy, do I hate him. That seems the way that they function now, right? But I believe the gospel. How do I do it? By considering revelation. Let me tell you another way that's scriptural. Faith cometh by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. Until you encounter revelation, you don't have any capacity for faith. What is there to believe? And you can preach that. See, if you're struggling to believe this Christian faith, it's because you're awash in social media, television, entertainment, sports, buying and selling and getting gain, and you haven't taken time to consider the revelation of God. General revelation would be creation. If there's a painting on the wall, there must be a painter. You're not going to tell me that's an accident. You know better than that. You know, I'm, being all, I'm off the cuff and I'm being a smart aleck. But you can work all this out. right? Find the best way to say it. And you can figure out in your preparation how much time you want to spend on it. What's going to be the emerging gem in the sermon, right? The centerpiece. So consider revelation. There's general revelation, then there's specific revelation. And this is this is it right here, right? So consider revelation. That would be one way. Let's see if there's another way that we might uh, believe the gospel. How? Consider revelation. It's revealed from faith to faith. As it is written, the just shall live by faith. So you have a written revelation there. You've got the general revelation down below. All there in your text are these points. Verse 18, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven 
against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who hold the truth in unrighteousness. So, we believe the gospel by considering revelation. And uh, by considering revelation, you're going to consider general revelation, specific revelation. What is this wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men? Well, we, we know that the wrath of God is real. And we see the wrath of God demonstrated at Calvary. That's one place we see it demonstrated and uh, God's view of sin. And so you can unpack that and commentators will help you see it clearly. But uh, considering Revelation in this exhausted state that I'm in right now, that's the only thing I'm pulling off the top of my head in terms of how to believe the gospel. There's no other way but to consider what God has revealed to us. And that's the reason there's a faith problem is often there's a preaching problem, right? Because so you get the point that in other words, there's not enough of the revelation in the preaching. So then there's the why. All I'm trying to do right now is practically demonstrate my process. And, and I, I got this process from somebody else who stole it from somebody else. And it's, a, it's a conglomeration of thoughts and practices and, and so you can work it out your own way. But you have a big idea and from that big idea comes a proposition and all that can flow, flow out of the context. You see, if all you get is this right here, how much better preaching will be because it's rooted in the Scripture. It's not your own idea. See, does that make sense? And so then, how do we believe the Gospel? We consider revelation. We consider what He said. That's what faith is, believing that which has been revealed. That is faith. Faith is not coming up with something on the inside that we want or we expect and we're going to believe God to do it for us, that's mysticism. We don't make up what God does. We don't make up what we believe. That's what charismatics do. That's what cults do. That's mysticism. We believe what has been revealed. And the gospel, above all else, has been revealed, right? So why? Why would we believe the gospel? All right? My first answer would be, number one, it's the work of Christ. Alright, so here's where my mind goes right there. You know, Romans 1, that's verse 16, for it is the gospel of Christ, right? It's his work. He did it. That's what he came to do. You know, the liberals and the, you know, the follow his, you know, in his steps people, the social gospel people. What would Jesus do? Well, <laughs> they say that like they're not sure what he would do. I'm sure it would be the nice <laughs> option. Whatever the question is, whatever seems nice to the leftist, that's what Jesus would do. How about if we look at what he did? <laughs> right? What he did is he came to seek and to save that which was lost. He died for man's sins because he's the only legitimate substitute. That's what he came to do. So that's a, that's a why. That's why I believe the gospel. It's the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's not the work of religious leaders. It's not the work of political do-gooders. It's not the work of intellectual eggheads. It's the work of the creator of the universe being made flesh and dwelling among us and bearing the sins of the world. It is the essence of the Christian faith. And that's why you ought to believe it. It's the work of Christ. Right? All right. So that's the work. 
that's about where my mind goes. Now, the way I'm thinking that through right now, I'd write that down. That's one of the, another thing I haven't really written in here, but one of the first things I do is that's the, that's the background section. I might take a notebook and write down everything about the passage I already know and think. Pour it out. So then later, that may be enough, you know, at some point, depending on what the occasion calls for. But So it is the work of Christ, number two. Why well, believe the gospel? Why? It's the work of Christ, number two, for it is the power of God unto salvation. So I would write down it's the power of God. You know what? There's a lot of preaching to be done right there, okay? Mm -hmm. There's not a whole lot of power in feminism to do anything but destroy homes, mm -hmm. right? There's, there's, to be honest with you, there's no power in the opposite of that. I mean, I'm not saying that you, you guys who are crazy about the MMA, that that's all bad, but at some point there's got to be more to being a man than beating somebody's brains out. <laughs> now, I like the thought of it. Uh, <laughs> very often, depending upon who the recipient of that beating is, right? So I appreciate that as far as it goes, but I'm saying there's no power in just raw, radical, unmitigated masculinity and manhood. That's all good stuff in its place. There's no power in that. All right? It's hopeless without Jesus Christ, without the gospel. Um, I, I love art galleries, which is kind of, I hate to admit that, but I like I like to see somebody get their head caved in, so I also like an art gallery, so I'm a man of balance, right? So, <laughs> That's that word, get balanced. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, you can go to an art gallery. It's really an amazing thing if you step outside of your um, Bass Pro Shop mentality for five <laughs> seconds. That's where I usually live most of my time, life, but if you step outside that and you're in a world-class art <laughs> In gallery, and here is, you know, impressionist masterpieces or, or, or Dutch Renaissance art. That when the light of the gospel began to shine in Europe again, and these paintings begin to emerge in the world of art, and there they are. It's astounding. That's moving to me. But it doesn't have the power to rescue a man from sin, right? Mm -hmm. uh, it doesn't matter it, it, how, how elevated you go, the greatest musical masterpiece is really nothing more than man's expression. Mm -hmm. And man's a wonderful creature when you consider that he's created in the image of God, and God is making capable of genius, right? The architecture of the world and all those things. But when it's all said and done, it's going to crumble. It's dust. But the gospel has it. It has power. So why? Consider Revelation is the how and its work of Christ. It's the power of God. Everyone that believeth. Right? I would say that uh, it's the power of God. And, um, you yeah, know, one thing you can say is that power, it, it, you know, I don't know if you know that. All right. To the Jew first and also to the Greek. You can explain that if you want to get into it, and that's going to create a little bit of a, of a challenge, but it, it's talking about chronology. It's not talking about priority. Okay, the gospel is going to be first to the Jews because of Jerusalem and Pentecost, and the Jews of the world will be gathered at Pentecost. The Jews are going to hear the gospel, and Peter is the apostle to the circumcision, and the Jewish church is going to grow and flourish. Persecution will set in in chapter 8. They will be dispersed. 
then the Apostle Paul's going to be born out of due time. Now we have the Apostle of the Gentiles, and he says, I will go to the Gentiles or they will hear it. So that's the Jew first and also to the Greek. And that's what's going to happen. For therein is the righteousness of God revealed from faith to faith. As it is written, the just shall live by faith. So what I think about the righteousness of God is revealed in the gospel. In other words, what is right, what God expects, what God requires. So I would say believe the gospel because it's the work of Christ. It's the power of God. And it's the only way to be made right with Him. Now there's there's better ways to, to say this. Um, we're just brainstorming here. And you have redundancies. But a lot of it is, again, how you want to say it, the crowd you're speaking to, the work of Christ could be redundant if you compare it to it's the only way to be made right with Him. Because that was, but What I mean by it's the work of Christ is what Jesus came to this earth to do. That's what He did. Then number two, it's the power of God. Because of what, we're, what Christ did, we can be delivered from the power of sin, and that's the only way to do it. And then number three, it's the only way to do it. It's the righteousness of God is revealed in the gospel. You want to see what is right and holy and good, what pleases God, what brings a sinner across the chasm of divine condemnation into the place of acceptance with God, into His presence, right? It's the gospel. And that's why we believe the gospel. Now, this is a lot of study and work. If you go through the plan, we've been talking about this afternoon. You get to this right here, okay? So now we add another big section, which is, is what was the last wording I gave you? Built a sermon or whatever was it, was it? Proposition. After the proposition. Sermon developed, yes. Um, so now, the sermon written, or write the sermon, depends on how you're using the words there. So now, now we have the building blocks, the material, the cross-reference. Don't forget now, back here, we have all of these references and from the word studies and all the information we wrote from our commentary research in that sermon diagram, all that stuff, you know, obviously there's more pages than this. It's just an example. And you got all that work done. So here's, here's the way you think about the sermon now. You look at this, and you probably at this point already got, it's already, you can go preach right now. Okay? And, and, and do well. But to really finish it up, now you're ready to build a sermon and you have a, a, an outline here that is heavy on the hows or heavy on the whys and light on the hows. So what I would do with that is preach the sermon. The body of the sermon would be answering the questions why and the conclusion would be the how. All right. So the way I would do that is I'm, I'm going to preach through these three points. It's the work of Christ, right? Um, um, I'm going to introduce the sermon. 
get it set up, which we'll look at in a second. That's like the last thing you do. But the body of ser my sermon is going to be why I believe the gospel. My, man, I'm asking you to believe the gospel today. You believe? I mean, do you believe it? <laughs> you know what I mean? Do you really believe it? And, and actually, I'm talking to two groups. That's another way to get to them. Right there. That's a great idea. So I'm going to say to them, you know, when we talk about the gospel, there's only two groups of people in here this morning. There are those of you who really believe it. You believe the gospel. Your life has been transformed by the power of the gospel. And there's somebody here, there's, I guarantee you, somebody here has never believed it. You might be okay with it intellectually. You may be have given mental assent to the fact of Jesus walking on the earth like George Washington did, but you've never turned to God in repentance and faith. You've never turned to the Savior, believed the gospel to save you from your sins. You haven't done that. And what I'm asking you to do today is believe the gospel. I'm asking you to consider what kind of shape you're going to be in if you die having not believed the gospel. And sometimes you just tell them straight up what you're doing. You're coming right at them with that. And then I would say, and there's some of you Christians who you've believed the gospel, but you find yourself in a state of practical variance. We've used those, those words this week. Well, you believe the gospel. Do you believe it? You know, when was the last time you talked to somebody you cared about about their soul? When was the last time you went out of your way to invite somebody to church? Because of the gospel. Let me ask you this. How long have you been saved? And can you explain the gospel to someone and tell them how to be saved? Do you know how to do that? Do you know how to bring a person through that material to a place of faith? You mean you've been saved for years and you have no idea how to get win somebody to Christ? Right? Mm -hmm. So, I'm just theorizing now. You know, there's ways to do it without it being so condescending that I'm exhausted. But that's kind of the thought process. So, then, to wrap it up, I've been, appeal I've been pleading with them to believe the gospel. It's the work of Christ. It's the power of God. It's the only way to be right with Him. And so I'm making these appeals the best way that I can. And then now at the conclusion, I'm going to say, so... Say, so, well, I want to believe the gospel, but I don't know how there's all these opinions out there and all these churches out there. And that's where I would say, I'm not asking you to be a Baptist. You don't have to be a Baptist to be a Christian. You can't be a Baptist until you're a Christian. <laughs> that's right. You've got to be a Christian first. You can be a Christian and never come back to this church. You can become a believer in the gospel and really dislike my sarcastic approach to all of this. But I'm telling you, like me or not like me, I love you. And I want you to believe the gospel. So hear this. It doesn't matter about the opinions of all the churches. Because the gospel is found in the scripture. God has revealed this truth to us right here. And then you just take them and show them. And try not to elaborate at that point. You've done a lot of preaching. Just show them the gospel is the death, burial, resurrection of Jesus Christ according to the Scriptures. Friends, He died for you because you can't do anything to save yourself. You've already made that clear, right? So you're just going to remind them, that this is what you're believing to go to heaven. You're not making yourself a Baptist. You're not believing this obnoxious Baptist preacher is right about everything. I'm a human being. I'm pointing you to this, to the revelation of Jesus Christ. Believe the gospel. You know, that's the way I would preach that. So now we've just put together a sermon 
This is the process, right? So now, with that in mind, I would I would probably title the sermon, just because of the way this one lays out so simplistically, I would title the sermon, Believe the Gospel. That would be my title for whatever that's worth, if the title's needed. And um, now you've got to think about that opening illustration, how to get people on board. And, and um, But I'm looking at this. Hmm. That for me is the hardest part, right? Let's say... some of you guys <laughs> and I don't, I don't do this very often but I'll do it sometimes to, just to wake people up and be sarcastic I'm not one of those guys who uses movies for sermon illustrations or nothing that kind of thing but I'm not afraid to wrecking you know to admit that I live in the world that I exist <laughs> I exist in the world and so when I thought of this thing believe the gospel then I thought do you believe and then my mind just I just heard that share song do you believe in love? You know what I mean? I'm not a Cher fan, but I just it's such a big pop song, it just popped into my head. So that, that fast, standing right here, this is where my mind went. I thought about dating my wife. Alright, so this is the way I would I would start this out. I would just go right to the pulpit and I'd say, you know, when it comes to romance and marriage and love, it's one thing to believe, and it's another thing it's to really believe, right? And so when I first met my wife. The first time I met her, I, I believed that she was different, right? That she was unique, that she was not somebody to be toyed with, that this was a real great Christian lady, and she was everything a guy would be looking for. So I believed that. But what I really, and, and that, people get interested in that stuff immediately. You know, and, and if I'm less tired, I can make a little more out of it. And then I'm going to say this, but when I really believed is the day I got married. And we left that church, and it was intended that our life was going to be, we were going to be one from then on out, there on out, right? That's where I really believed. That's where I put my weight on this idea of being married and committed to this woman that I love. Now, right here in this room this morning are a lot of people, you believe in the Lord Jesus, but you believe in the Lord Jesus like I did when I met her and said, that's a good-looking girl, she's attractive, and she's really nice, and she laughs at my jokes, and I like her. That's about as far as your belief in Jesus goes. You're Tom T. Hall. Me and Jesus got our own thing going. <laughs> right? Good Lord and a big man upstairs. I believe in Jesus. Right? The King James Bible. That's about as far as your faith goes. Repentance involves going to the altar, right? You got to be careful about misleading somebody with your illustration. But it, but repentance and faith is like the day you get married. You're you're in repentance toward God, faith toward our Lord Jesus Christ. 
it's like the wheelbarrow illustration. You know, the guy in Niagara Falls did the tightrope with the wheelbarrow, you know that deal? Mm -hmm. Push the guy across and he gets a standing ovation and he asks the crowd, how many of y'all believe I could push this across with somebody in it? 